Hello, hello! In this episode, you will find out how sustainable are Tetra packs, aluminium cans, and glass jars. How are corporates using hidden greenwashing tactics? And what does a circular economy look like in the packaging industry? You will hear that and much more from our guest Paul Fox Arellano, the founder of the Sustainable Design Alliance based in London. Paul focuses on sustainable innovation, and I met him leading one of the sessions at an impact summit in Spain a couple of years ago. He has 30 years of experience in innovation and strategic brand consultancy across the world. I had a lot of fun talking with him, and I hope you will enjoy the interview as much as I did. Let's jump right in. You're listening to season two on Plastic Alternatives. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. For resources and to get involved, visit redtogreen.solutions. And I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Paul, uh, it's awesome to talk to you. You've been a fantastic contribution to actually figure out our path. Uh, within this season and this complex topic. And I super appreciate you being there for recommendations and uh, helping a bit to lift the greenwash fog within this topic. Yeah, my pleasure. There is so much greenwash around. Often it's very hard to see anything in this world of plastic packaging. Maybe we can start out by thinking about plastic and foods specifically. Why is single-use plastic such a problem that we need to tackle? Single-use plastic is problematic in so many ways that proponents of plastic even understand or are ignorant of because they're based in often G7 countries where there is recycling and where they have clean streets. Single-use plastic is an issue in every country. It's literally solid fossil fuels being pumped into the environment. And even when plastics are recycled, they remain solid fossil fuel, which will eventually go into the landfill, which somehow suggests mm -hmm. that landfill is a, a safe place for all of these toxic materials. It's not. Those plastics there break down very slowly and they get into waterways, they get into the soils, and we get this microplastic pollution, which has become very kind of newsworthy in the past two or three years. And that's just in the Western world. So you're talking about landfill, and then the other option in Germany, we call it energetic recovery, which yes. is such a such a great term for we just burn it. Uh, Energy recovery. Wow. So that's the alternative. And how would you evaluate this alternative in terms of pollution and actual efficiency? Yeah. I've questioned a lot of people, including experts in human health, on what happens when we burn fossil fuel plastics. And if the filters are performing as they should, we should not be pumping lots of dangerous toxins into the air when mm. we are turning plastic waste into energy. However, all we are doing is literally taking a fossil fuel and making energy from it. It's no different mm. in reality than burning gas or burning oil or burning coal. So 
when people say, oh, yeah, but we can just burn it for energy, they're just perpetuating fossil fuels. Yeah, and that's something that I've been stumbling across in so many interviews and so many documentaries and even books. And it's actually quite tricky to argue with it because a lot of people talk about the life cycle assessment or the life cycle analysis and talk about plastics actually having a lower carbon footprint because they may get recycled. And if you spread out the carbon footprint among the different users, then it's supposedly lower. That's the rationale that I've I've been seeing so yeah. far. I mean, basically, the plastics industry decided many years ago to put all of their efforts into LCAs or life cycle um, analysis, as you say, because plastics can be incredibly lightweight. Therein also lies its problem, because actually the LCAs assume that the plastic will be recycled, when mm. in fact it's not. And we know that plastic film, which is one of the biggest pollutants, is not recycled. There is a huge amount of work being done by the flexible plastics industry to create recycling, which has some kind of value or which is viable economically. But mm -hmm. even the guy leading the project says there are enormous challenges. And they've been working on this for many 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 years in fact decades so now because legislation is arriving people are trying to create this recycling but when they do their lcas and say oh plastic is the greenest material because mm -hmm. look at our lcas they're mm -hmm. not taking into account the extermination of many species they're not taking into yeah. account pollution contamination and if you look again beyond Europe, if you look at places like Africa, where the Nile is absolutely full of plastic, where fish populations are affected by plastic, and people are actually losing their livelihoods and their food because of plastic, that's not built into an LCA. So an LCA is a very blunt metric. It's a piece of maths, and quite frankly, I've seen LCAs for all kinds of material, from the carton and paper industry, from mm. the, the, the metals packaging industries, from the plastics, and they all prove to be the best. Yeah. But in reality, plastics cannot currently be circular because they degrade, they lose volume and mass as they're being mechanically recycled. So they invent a new pledge, a new way of helping the LCA to fruition, which is chemical recycling, but it's not viable economically. And again, it's been worked on for three decades and we don't have the progress. So this LCA is a political lobbying technique, not mm. something that I would regard as true science because in reality, those LCAs pretend that the plastics are kept in the loop that they are recycled, which clearly does not happen. The only country that claims it does that is Germany, and that is mainly by burning things or shipping them abroad. Yeah, and the shipping things abroad is something that's so often overlooked. So there's this whole thing about pushing the responsibility towards, for example, the Asian continent, right, saying, yes. well, they need to get their stuff together, uh, but actually 
Indonesia, for example, is getting all of the waste from America, from different developed countries. They barely handle their own waste, and now they get more waste from supposedly better equipped countries, which should be able to handle their recycling. So who can blame them, right? Absolutely. I mean, luckily in the UK, we've been able to lobby our government and have the export of waste to Asia cancelled. So we will no mm -hmm. longer have direct export. However, what you discover when you talk to the environmental agency is that British waste mafia and that's the only way to describe them they are not official recyclers they are waste mafia will uh -huh. truck that material to other parts of europe from which they will then ship that waste and what we've seen by investigations actually carried out by experts in uh, waste shipment is that there's a whole illegal network. Right now, UK waste is often trucked to Turkey. Mm. And once it's in Turkey, you have no idea where it might go because they're certainly not handling it. They don't have the facilities to deal with the huge amounts of plastic waste. So it's going somewhere. And that somewhere could be anywhere in the world, quite frankly. And to be honest, recycling is not the answer anyway. And the yeah. plastics industry, I mean, this is what's coming out now. We're seeing more and more whistleblowing from people involved in these lobbying efforts. So PBS, the American documentary channel, had a great documentary early this year where the people who put together all of this recycling will save us mm -hmm. knew that this was not viable. And they began by saying we as a plastics industry won't pay for it. Local yeah. government and national government, and ultimately, therefore, the consumer will pay for it. Therefore, we keep our profit margins. And they did yeah. that knowingly, and they've now admitted that on camera. Interesting. Is that the Plastic Wars documentary, or is that another one? Yeah, that one. Fortunately, we have Netflix, which tells us the truth, or PBS, <laughs> or BBC, or Deutsche Welle. We have all these media sources who are going behind the scenes, like Sky News, and we can see the pollution being burnt in Asia. There it is, with European brand names on the plastic being burnt illegally in Asia on little piles and, and mm. suffocating people. So that's what happens very often. Plastic is not being burnt in beautiful European waste facilities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's pretty much a system that's set up to not be actually functional. So we are spending all of that media attention, all of the bit of corporate money that is going into this, but also state money to build up an infrastructure that even if it's in the best state possible, is not actually sufficient to solve the problem in due time, right? Yeah, and um, what you've just said, the plastics industry expects the state, i.e. the consumer, not just to pay for the packaging once, but also to pay for its disposal. So when we pay our council some tax for services, that includes waste disposal. Hmm. So we're paying twice for that packaging as consumers. We're paying to buy it, but also we're paying for its disposal. Yeah. And often 
it's not very good disposal because actually a local council filled with very well-meaning people will sell that waste to a processor and the processor then will sell that to a mafioso Mm -hmm. unwittingly they don't know they don't do an audit what we do know is that no one ever audits where this plastic ends up we've actually asked people how many times have you been to asia never Mm. so we ultimately are being duped by the industry and they pay nothing for it which is why now campaigners are asking for proper plastic taxes because that's the only way to bring up the price of plastic yeah which is subsidized with trillions of dollars of fossil fuel subsidies to a rate where we see the true cost of plastic and plastic pollution. I recently listened to a podcast episode by the Bioplastics Podcasts featuring Dana Breed, the global R&D director of packaging and sustainability at Coca-Cola. So her way of describing why uh, plastic is circular is the following. They designed a bottle with 30% bioplastics but it's still 70% petroleum-based feedstock. They say this is actually the better way of doing it in a circular manner because if it's biodegradable, then you actually are losing the material. So you need to create the material from scratch if it biodegrades. Now, what I find interesting about that is that they haven't even touched home compostable or industrial compostable solutions like they don't exist, like it's just the distinction between well there is this is recyclable and this is biodegradable and biodegradable is not circular and that's not the first time that i've seen this sort of line of argument how would you respond to that i think it's really interesting beverages and food is different because actually beverage plastic is much easier to recycle because the food contaminates you get like mayo or oil or any kind of greasy stuff on on plastic and it's really hard to mechanically recycle so beverage plastic is different and in a way she's absolutely right to say that compostables are not circular because in fact the whole point about circularity is keeping the resource in the loop but it's very disingenuous to pretend that plastics are circular they would only be circular if they were being refilled Mm -hmm. so interestingly when coca-cola took a partnership with loop which is a refillable system, the bottles they provide working alongside TerraCycle are made of glass. Mm -hmm. So if they truly believed that plastic was the most circular material, why then, working with loop, would they put in a heavy glass bottle into the Mm -hmm. refill system? It just basically negates their whole argument. And in fact, I read a recent interview with someone else from Sustainability from Coca-Cola Europe boasting that they still have many, many millions of glass refill Mm. bottles which are truly circular. I mean, they Mm -hmm. can go around 20, 30 times. And when they end, the glass is fully recycled and turned into new glass bottles. So why would they boast about that if they thought plastic was a greener alternative? Why would they prioritize it above glass? Also, glass is inert. It's not going to taint It's not going to shed microplastics. So there's some very mixed messaging coming out because they know they're in a very difficult situation. They're getting literally attacked by every NGO in conservation, in plastic reduction, 
they're being attacked by governments. So they're having to defend plastic, but why? Because the profit margins are greater on plastic. If you look at when Coca-Cola was mainly a refill company and look at their profit levels, they were lower than they are today. And ultimately, all they're doing is trying to create more profit, sustain those profits, and retain the existing infrastructure that they've built. Yeah. So to anybody listening who has ever had an interest in compostable materials and alternatives to food packaging or plastic packaging. There are so many types of packaging, right? This would probably be a good time to start a venture. Yes, absolutely. What's interesting is I think we've talked about the rejection of compostables in terms of circularity, but you can't keep everything in the loop when it contains food. Because if you're looking at food service, if you're looking at out-of-home eating, it's literally if you're getting things covered in mayo and oil and mm. ketchup and salad dressing what are you going to do so actually there is a massive role for compostability for outdoor eating of food and takeaway food because actually you can capture that and you can through the composting process there are great new technologies for creating bioenergy or for turning that into something that you can feed it to microbes and do stuff or bacteria. There are bio solutions that can be seen as being somewhat circular. But ultimately, Mm. there is a huge role for compostability in outdoor eating. We can't take it off the table. So I think if things are being sold in supermarkets, let's try and use resources that can stay in the loop. But if we are literally unable to keep materials in the loop don't create pollution don't pretend that somehow this lightweight fossil fuel plastic is going to be kept in the loop in outdoor environments it just isn't this is pure speculation and and pure myth so Mm. we need to have compostables as part of a food packaging mix and this whole trend of corporates going into Uh, big change programs, sustainability programs like Nestle committing to 100% recyclable plastics and and so on. How do you evaluate that? How much of this is actual true change and how much is BS? And at the same time, one also has to say, well, it's a step maybe in the right direction, but it's actually still not to a degree that's actually sustainable. Yeah, you've hit a really good point because if you don't hit your target, if you don't achieve the pledge that you make, there is no action from government. There is no action from consumers or industry. So you can make all these pledges and then fail them. If you analyze the pledges, the pacts, the alliances to end plastic waste, the targets, if they don't hit them, there is no consequence. Therefore, Mm. it's incredibly easy to make these sweeping statements yeah and big 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 difference is is it theoretically recyclable or is it actually being recycled i saw a great comment today by someone who's a real authority saying we now have to start differentiating between recyclable and collected and recycled because actually lots of things are recyclable at a cost but there's not even a collection methodology. How would you evaluate 
brands that boast about their products being 100% from recyclable plastic. Like there is this plastic bank, for example, they describe their plastic as social plastic. They are basically putting a beautiful gloss on the fossil fuel industry. And what is plastic? It's just, you know, it's fossil fuel. Therefore, all of this is just ridiculous because even if the plastic is 100% recycled, it's still 100% fossil fuel. It's the thing we're trying to get rid of from all of our other sectors. Mm. When I go to the supermarket, I've been doing a 30-day less plastic challenge. And actually, it really made me question, well, if I have coconut milk in a tin can or in a Tetra pack, well, which one should I buy, right? Yeah. These daily confrontations with what is actually more sustainable become very apparent. So on a personal note, if I would be evaluating between a tin can of coconut milk and a Tetra pack, I think in terms of health, a Tetra pack may be better. And in terms of sustainability, a tin can may be better. Yeah, the inner lining of both, the thing oh. touching the product, is fossil fuel in both cases. Yes. So you basically, oh. you have a choice of either a fossil fuel lining or a fossil fuel lining. <laughs> if you had it in glass, it would be inert because the glass uh. itself, it doesn't need any further lining. Yeah. So this is this is the sort of conundrums of consumers. What would be great would be a carton without a lining a carton with some kind of bio lacquer made mm -hmm. of some kind of tree resin or fruit uh, peel kind of lacquer that kept the product fresh that stopped you having to have product interacting with fossil fuel and and i think this will come i think you will notice the the carton companies tetra pack sig combi block and elo pack are all working on a fully bio carton that mm. will be fully recyclable and they're getting closer and closer mm. because the tetra pack or the let's say let's talk about general carton companies it's not as recyclable as many people think right yeah i mean tetra pack are running adverts currently in the uk talking about their sustainable credentials because they know they're under attack. The people who are lobbying for plastic reduction are not fans of Tetra Pak because they know that globally only 20% of cartons are recycled. Wow. And, yeah. So 80% of cartons, and they hate people to know this figure. They absolutely yeah. hate people. Even within the UK, which is a big recycling nation, you're looking at less than 60% probably of mm. cartons being recycled. And when we say recycled, we mean the pulp from the carton being separated, the aluminium being recycled, and the plastic component being burnt. So that plastic layer within Tetra Pak mm. is being burnt. It's not being turned into some beautiful new plastic bottle or film. Not as far as I'm aware, unless they've managed to change things in the last six months that all these packaging companies are playing a kind of lobbying battle they're trying to win our hearts mm. but people are aware people are able to find information on social media and make their own choices and it drives people to sort of say but i don't have a choice because my supermarket doesn't give it me 
you know, if you want to be truly plastic free, you cannot use supermarkets. You have to choose mm. a much, much different route. Mm. Yeah. And for the month that I've been reducing plastic, including still now, I actually stopped eating any plant-based alternatives because, well, all of the ones that we have here that I've seen, they are packaged in some way in plastic. <laughs> I was so disappointed. I bought this uh, one which was packaged in carton just to open it, and then it was packaged in plastic. Uh, <laughs> are you kidding me, guys? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've been having this debate about oat milk. And in fact, the plastic-free way of making oat milk, if you liquidize the oats in water and then strain it, you can make your own oat milk mm. at around 10% of the cost of a carton of oat milk. So you're saving a, a fortune. But plastic-free often involves a little bit more effort. Honestly, I don't really have the time for that mm. little bit of extra effort. What I need is the brands to give me what I need plastic-free. So come on, brands, get get moving. Yeah, because I think exactly the audience that buys these plant-based products is also open to pay a bit more to have more sustainable packaging. Correct. I've always said, if you are a vegan brand or a plant-based brand, you should be first in line to be using fossil-free packaging. Yeah. You should be pioneering. You shouldn't be, oh, yeah, it's really hard. I'm a small brand. Let me go plastic. Mm. It's not fair. It's, mm. it's just not fair on your consumer you're being ultimately two-faced, hypocritical, because you're giving them the reduced carbon footprint of plant-based, but then throwing fossil fuels at them, which ultimately will harm other wildlife. Yeah, definitely. We always need to push back the transfer of responsibility to the consumers, this spiel of the plastics industry, and come back to the responsibility of the companies to provide Absolutely. their products in a way that by default is good. Because, I mean, it's even ironic if you think about that, the company has an interest in having people buy their products. So if you don't have sustainable packaging, then you are actively pushing that out into the world. And you can't blame the consumers for buying your products, which are unsustainable, because you're marketing it to them. You you want them to buy it. So. Yeah, you can't and blame them for it. Yeah, no, it, it's really duplicitous, two-faced behavior. And it's that often it's impossible for the brand manager to do the right thing because they're in such a large organization and they, they cannot move. They're trapped into a structure. Yeah. So if we look at other impacts, what are the criteria that we need to consider when we are assessing the sustainability of packaging. Let's look at it from the position of a decision maker and a company that needs to think about what other material, what other type of packaging are we going to switch to? I think there are really two criteria. I do think we need to look at carbon footprint. So we do need to look at things until we move to fully electric. Right now, we are not in a fully electric vehicle world. We're burning fossil fuels to transport food and drinks. So we do mm. need to think about the weight. We need lightweight materials. We've got options. We've got more and more paper solutions, which are very lightweight. We have the slim aluminium cans 
for beverages, which are very lightweight, more lightweight than a plastic bottle. I mean, this is one of the things that's laughable. You know, an aluminium can weighs less than a bottle because the cap of the bottle is so heavy as well. It's Mm. crazy. So that's one thing. But then we need to add to that, does this pollute the environment? Is this going to kill wildlife? Is this going to damage human health? So I think those are the two criteria you need to balance together. And often you don't have the right solution technically because you're looking in the wrong place. And I think all of my work in helping brands move to more sustainable solutions, when you begin work, what they're looking at is often a better material of the same class. So they're looking, often if they're plastics, they're thinking, oh, let me go for a bioplastic that's compostable. That's the easiest jump because Mm -hmm. they're thinking, I understand that and I understand it. But that can often be the very wrong place to look. You do need to make a kind of mental leap into a world which is without fossil fuels. What would you do? And it is actually often bringing two packaging suppliers together to create the sustainable solution, not just one supplier or one source. So that measurement can only be done when you have the new solution. You can't take something off the shelf or straight mm-hmm. from a sample and go, oh, that fails, because mm-hmm. that's not how you do packaging innovation. And all of the the people I've worked with in my sort of 30-year career in packaging innovation will spend, all these brilliant industrial designers will spend one, two, three years creating a solution mm-hmm. and working with a variety of manufacturers and material suppliers to come up with the right sustainable solution. It's not an overnight switch. And often big brands go to their procurement teams, and I've heard it from the procurement people, we've been asked to find an alternative. It's not a procurement decision. You can't (laughs) just go buy the right solution. It's like, find me a Tetra pack that doesn't have um, plastic and aluminium in it. It's like, well, we can't find one. Oh, we give up then. We just carry on using Tetra pack. Mm -hmm. This is the problem. It's quite a, a systemic issue. So looking at sustainability, you can't just compare one thing with another. You have to look at the whole system. If I understood you right, it's sometimes the fusion of two different materials or two different possible solutions. Like yes. One yeah. of the plant-based meats that actually is the best one in terms of packaging has an outer paper packaging so at the bottom and then the actual meat is lined in plastic but a rather thin lining it's very easy to take off so separates very cleanly and it describes on the carton put the plastic into the yellow bin and put the paper into the blue bin and so on so that's an example where there's still some plastic, but at least they have reduced it by removing the thicker part of plastic. Yeah. The interesting thing looking at plant-based meats is there is a plastic-free solution to sell the product frozen rather than fresh because any fresh product needs protection. But the process of freezing something is the protection it needs. Mm -hmm. So you can put a frozen burger plant-based burger, straight into a carton, which is recyclable. It will have a protective 
lining material that will that can be again there are lots of new ones coming out but you can this is again a kind of change in attitude a lot of these plant-based substitutes want to sell fresh because they're appealing to be like they're trying to be fresh meat and mm-hmm. appealing to this kind of ethical consumer who wants who sees fresh as being the best from a sustainability point of view frozen is the best we should be buying particularly when we get to renewable energy and we can run our fridges as much as we want because we're using wind power or solar we want things to be frozen because the food waste is less with frozen because mm-hmm. anything fresh can go off quite easily you forget and the packaging with frozen is plastic free and you can even put in like a sachet of little serving of sauce and that can be frozen inside the packet as a little frozen cube which doesn't need any extra plastic yes amazing so yeah i mean this is again these are almost like these mental leaps that you have to make so i've got a former client who was working the frozen meat business she now has a frozen plant-based product and one of the supermarkets is demanding plastic-free packaging for her to sell and this is where the push is coming so it's very interesting to see the supermarkets jockeying for position to see who will be the most sustainable and they are driving this innovation and literally they are saying if you don't come plastic free we don't want your product yeah this is great this is great awesome. let's get to some of the ending questions yeah paul if you would have 50 million in what businesses would you invest it in if it would be excluded if that wouldn't be your own ventures and it's not limited to food i would definitely invest 50 million in plant-based technologies so i mm-hmm. would look at investing in materials that can be used not just for packaging but also for textiles and for other applications because you could then recover all of that material and keep using it and use it within different industries. So I would be looking at things like seaweed, looking at grasses like miscanthus. I would be looking at really interesting, fast-growing products that perhaps we're not using today, but I would also be looking at introducing things like leaves which may add some kind of longevity to that material i would be looking to invest in some kind of forest which makes great circular materials and this forest could be of shrubs or plants or grasses and it would be also giving huge amounts of space for biodiversity because it would all be allowing huge amounts of butterflies and bugs and monkeys to survive in that and you would find a way of cropping without destroying the environment because what i've realized i grow a lot of my own food if you take leaves off things carefully the plant keeps growing it doesn't die so that would be the way forward for me what upcoming packaging innovations or trends are especially interesting for the food industry I think the most interesting thing for the food industry in terms of packaging is what I might call kind of additives or natural additives. What can we harvest from nature, from orange skins or seaweed or apple seeds or mango leaves that can be added to quite standard packaging 
that will make it somehow added value. I also think there's something around nanotechnology. I've had a few discussions about nanomaterials of creating kind of lattices of metal or cellulose, working them together that makes that material somehow indestructible, uncontaminated, keeps it in the loop, maybe fully recyclable. I think there's something around nanotechnology or looking at things at cellular level that I don't know what it will be yet, but it, it to me it seems sensible. What magazines, books or other resources would you recommend to listeners? I'm tending to read a lot of books at the moment because I think a lot of the magazines and, and online resources are printing press releases. Hmm. They're not analyzing things. So often to get the true information, you need to read a book by an author who spent two years really understanding the topic. So top of my list is a book called Green Swans by hmm. John Elkington who's someone that I followed for decades. And it has a foreword by Paul Polman, who used to be CEO at Unilever. That would be my sort of top recommendation. If you haven't read The Donut Economy by Kate Roweth, that would be like my second book. I think everything that we do has to basically fit into the donut economy to give fair wages and a proper life to everybody in the world. Otherwise, why are we doing it? It just doesn't make sense. And then in terms of books that I would recommend, number one about packaging and all products would be one that's called Products That Last. One of the authors is Dr. Marcel Den Hollander, who I someone I talk to a lot, who really informs my ideas. So Products That Last, I think, is a, a great book. It's quite simple to read has lots of photographs, lots of diagrams. So it makes the circular economy really easy to understand. And then finally, one which is very heavily about packaging and product design is one by Jane Penty, which is called Product Design and Sustainability. She is a lecturer in product design and packaging. And her book is super new. It's beautifully designed, lots of color photographs, lots of examples of packaging and product. And it's really simple to read, really well designed as a book, and lots of charts and graphs that are just make quite complex subjects super simple. So yeah, I love the way the book is designed and laid out as well, which is really important. Amazing. Wow. There's a lot of things to put on the to read list uh, for yeah. people listening there's so much to learn about the topic it's never ending thank you so much paul this was extremely interesting i think i could keep going asking questions for the next five hours yeah it's a big topic <laughs> well is there any way that listeners can support you or reach out to you for sure so i have one ngo which i run called sustainable design alliance so I would encourage you to follow Sustainable Design Alliance on LinkedIn. Then I have my own consulting firm where I work with clients, and that's Circuthon Consulting, C-I-R-C-U-T-H-O-N, Consulting. Awesome. Thank you, Paul. Great to talk to you. If you like Red to Green, remember to subscribe and share it with your colleagues or friends who could be interested. To volunteer in industry research, marketing, or writing articles, check out redtogreen.solutions. There you will also find resources mentioned in the episodes. 
Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.